Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Into the Bytecode. So fun fact, the conversation I'm publishing today is actually the very first one I recorded for the podcast about six months ago. It's a conversation with Justin Glibert about an early prototype of a game he was working on at the time and which he's close to publishing now. We got to talk about some of the patterns he's uncovered while building Ember, which is the game, and Lattice, which is the engine behind the game. Patterns like inflation and zero-sum resources, spatial constraints, and user impersonation. Justin's a friend and a brilliant person, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. The interesting thing is that when you build something that is fully on-chain, um, so when you only have a client and then the truth and it's just like on-chain, the interesting thing first is that, you know, when you build video games um, that are multiplayer, there are two big paradigms. One is server authoritative. So like the server is basically just ticking the game internally and then clients just send commands and clients just like try to optimistically predict what's going to happen and they roll back if the server just like sends them something that conflicts with their internal state. And you need to build authoritative servers now because otherwise people will cheat. Um, there is no way to prevent cheating with authoritative servers. As an example, in Minecraft, Minecraft is not authoritative. So Minecraft is authoritative for blocks that are broken or, or like not. But as an example, the Minecraft server doesn't take the physics, which means that client-side in Minecraft, you can fly. There is no way for the server to make sure that the jump you made is valid. So there is a very simple protection server side is it just checks how fast you're moving. And if you move too fast, it will ban you. But apart from that, if like there's a jump you can barely make and somehow you like slightly change the physics content such as you can, there's no way for the server to know because it's not authoritative. Whereas games like Overwatch and League of Legends are completely server authoritative because they're just way too competitive. And the annoying thing when you build a server authoritative games is that even if you architect it really well, most of the time you have to implement everything twice because you have things that are client side and server side. But for on-sheet stuff, it's pretty interesting because they're authoritative by default. So the way you do it is you write your contracts with the rules of the game and then your client just like cons updates the state through events, mutate the state through transactions, and then that's it. You have server authoritative games just from that. The other interesting thing too is that if you build a game, it's really hard to show so someone, okay, what is the critical part of the code that has the rules that needs to be audited or like verified or whatever? Because it's all over the place. It's tens of thousands of lines of code because the rules are mixed with the business logic, with the networking layer, with the account, account management. Whereas here, it's just the rules. You look at the smart contracts, there is nothing but the rules. And so this is pretty nice because at any point in time, like our, the rules of our game, they're already pretty like not complex, but they have a bunch of edge cases that we had to implement. And at any point in time, I can just open a Solidity file that is 400 lines long and I have the rules of the game. So this is already very interesting, I think. So is part of how you think about the game design to minimize the rule set that's in the smart contracts and then just leave the client side completely yeah. free, like leave degrees of freedom that people can play around with yeah. client side? Is that you proactively think yeah, about yeah. that? Yeah, we do it that way. I mean, because writing Solidity is hard. Um, and the limits of the EVMs are very restrictive. So the way we think about it is um, anything that can be client-side should be client-side, right? And so as an example, the smart contracts will expect you to send things that are basically like does most of the work already, and then it just does checks on top of this. 
But as an example, if you play the game, you'll see there are a bunch of tiny workers going around and stuff like that. Those are completely client-side. They do not even exist on chain. They're just like rendered in your client. Monsters are in regions which are like basically areas of eight by eight squares or tiles. And when you play the game, you see them moving around in that region, but it's on entirely client-side. So basically one thing we discovered is you can make the game feel more alive and interactive by just adding basically like sugarcoating client-side. That is just, and, and similarly, like client-side, you can queue a lot of actions and create arbitrary complex. We're, we're building this thing now, like which is called the meta action queue, because right now there's an action queue. But what if, like if you play an RTS, sometimes you want to drop rally points, right? So every time something like pops out of your barrack, it should move there. But right now we only have, trans have transactions to move from one region to another. So now that we have an action queue, we want to be able to like have a Lua interpreter in the game so you can build meta actions on top. Oh like, my uh, God. I want, I want my monsters to like patrol around this area. And so that patrol would just be some Lua code that just like adds transactions to the queue based on a specific pattern. But all this is push client side because ultimately the contracts just verify that the physics of the game and the invariants are not broken and just all the, and it does all the authoritative stuff. And the client just like syncs the state and like prepares a bunch of transactions. So it's much better. Actually, I built a bunch of games before that are multiplayer, and this one is the cleanest in terms of implementation because of the restrictions we have by building on top of Ethereum. Yeah. Like, obviously, the gameplay experience matters, right? So if someone's actually going to enjoy the game, the sugarcoating layers on top and these, like, monsters that don't actually, like, matter at the root level play a key role in that person having a good experience. But on the other hand, like if these games, especially being on chain, like you can take the NFTs out and yeah. like sell them and like there will be people who are who will just be kind of focused on what's what actually matters here. Yes, and yes. they would probably create skins that just get rid of all the useless stuff. And it's yeah. maybe just the terminal window that's yeah, solving math possible. problems. Yeah, yeah. So how do you do you think these two groups and there's like other types yeah. of players too? Do you think they'll coexist in the same games and how yeah. will they interact? Yes, this is a really good question. And we're already like at Dark Forest, Georgios from Paradigm just implemented the Dark Forest packet. I mean, internal part of the game in Rust. And he said that next round, this empire will be algorithmic. And he's probably going to destroy everybody because people write plugins that are client side, but they're slow because like the game has a bunch of performance issues. He's just re-implementing the whole game in Rust. Oh my it's God. It's going to run on bare metal and it's going to be so fast. Yeah. And so we'll see. I mean, it's going to be interesting, right? So I think that the problem right now, as an example in Dark Forest, depending on your leaderboard positions, you get them into the NFT, right? And we, like people started putting pretty high bids on those NFTs, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. It's kind of like buying the price. Like if you were to go to the Olympics and instead of competing, you would just buy the prize from an athlete, which is, I don't know what I think about this, but yeah, people are trying to do that. And so it is true that there are going to be very different stakeholders and people that have very different utility functions when they play the game. So one way I'm thinking about is those players did coexist in games like EVE Online and World of Warcraft, right? They're like very hard. There were players who were just leveling up characters and then selling them when they get to like level 70 yeah, or whatever yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. So, and, and so either we can figure out what their playbook was to make this enjoyable for everybody, or maybe, maybe for them, the problem would have been worse had they not gone through like the effort of having all those anti-cheating solutions and banning the the gold farm in China and stuff like that, because here there's no way for us to do that, right? If you build a blockchain game, 
I mean, if you build a game that runs on smart contracts, you will have bots, right? Right. So I think that it's less about what can we do to prevent this and more about what kind of mechanisms design can we think about to just like not incentivize those behaviors. And this is really hard and I don't have an answer yet. I'm reading, actually, I don't know if you know Ultima Online. No. So you know Ultima, it's like one of the first RPG. And so Ultima Online was the first graphical MMORPG. And interestingly, like any game that has been built after that, like World of Warcraft and stuff like that, it's all based on Ultima. They created the patterns and now everybody is just implementing them. And they had very interesting problems because um, they really wanted to let players be player killers. So they didn't want to have safe zone at the beginning because they, because they thought it would prevent people from actually role playing properly because who is safe anywhere in the real world, right? Or like even in, in fantasy, like in Lord of the Rings, whatever, you can't just go into an inn and then you're protected from like the minions of Sauron. So you can't do that. Right. right? Um, but they had a pretty serious problem with this because turns out killing other players is way more enjoyable than doing anything else in the game. Right. <laughs> so, and they never actually solved it. The game probably died because of this and inflation, which is why yesterday we gave a talk about Ticket Dungeon and I was talking about the fact that some resources are zero-sum because inflation is a big problem in virtual worlds. And so right now I'm spending quite a lot of time just like reading through postmortems of those games trying to understand what went wrong and how you can build to yeah. prevent this. But I don't have any satisfying answer yet. I feel like there's this interesting parallel almost like with the professional kind of amateur, you know, division mm-hmm. with say staking on mm-hmm. Ethereum, yeah. right? Where you have these, uh, you know, large validators and the protocol has been designed to incentivize small people to run validators. And they, it's actually, if you violate the protocol and you're going to get slashed, the amount that you get slashed is proportional to how many other people in the network also got slashed for the same reason. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're, you know, in the same pool, in a large pool, and that pool gets slashed, you get more damage than if you were uncorrelated in the way that you slash. So the protocol has this like decentralizing influence on how it how it evolves. Mm-hmm. I think this idea of like inflation in the game yeah. and zero sum resources, it's yeah. pretty interesting. Like how does that work? So the interesting thing is that there are sources in sync in the game. Here the sources in the game are you can mine gold and you can create it from time using gold generators. It's pretty dumb, but it works for now. And you have sinks because you can build buildings that cost gold and then get destroyed. So some value gets created and at some point it gets destroyed. And there is basically you want to balance the sources in the sink, right? But the problem is that there is no way for you to make sure that like it's actually, it checks out. Like the, the loop closes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really hard. So as an example, in, in MMOs, the way they do it is Let's say you're a player who sells dragon scales, right? This is like you, you're role-playing as a dragon killer. You have like everything you need to kill dragons to get, then sell, sell those, those items. But if the price of dragon scales drop by so much that now people are actually like buying them from NPCs because it's like so cheap, then like your entire identity in the game is shattered. Like, and, and the game because developer will tell you... Because yeah, you had oriented around... Yeah, and no, it's not dragon. profitable anymore, right? Right. And then like the game the robot tell you, well, then just go fishing, right? Fishing is nice. Fishing makes money, but you don't want to go fishing. This is not what you want to do, right? And so this is why, interestingly, in most games, there, are, there is basically like 
NPCs buying items at a certain price and selling at a certain price. So those provides boundaries on how expensive and how cheap item can be in the player-generated economies, right? So it's, it's like the house is exactly. it's, it's the yeah the the assets are backed by some authority that will always purchase or sell them to you exactly. at that price. But it's ridiculous if you think about it. There is no seller in the real world that will happily take your million dragon scales at a certain price without any without even changing that price if you have sold them like 500k right it's, it's just ridiculous if you think about it but this is how those economies work this is what they had to do to make it not completely free market and to degenerate completely and so there's no kind of notion of supply and demand once you get to that price yeah it's just, between that you can like right between those two boundaries the market can be volatile and there are like macro events that will drive the price but if it or if it like saturates to the upper bound or like I don't know what the opposite of saturating is, but on the other on the lower bound, then yes, the market becomes boring because players can just buy from the house essentially or sell to the house. Um, so this is like monetary policy. This is monetary policy in virtual worlds. There's a really interesting book about virtual economies. I'll give you. I'll text you the title later. But yeah, I'm reading that right now, and it's fascinating. I do you know that Tencent? You know, like the big pay. Like it's like WeChat in the in in China, but they have this the whole payment system. It started because they had points in the app that you could use to buy cosmetics. And then people realized it was better money. So everybody was paying each other in China using those points because at some point you could get it out of the system for real dollars. And the Chinese government told Tencent, you basically like have an alternate currency. And so they had to shut it down and back it with like Yuan basically instead. And it's crazy because if there is any store of value, people will use it. Yeah. <laughs> and so the problem now, because you have the whole interoperability with the rest, is that you have to think about it. Is it possible? In Dark Forest, you cannot get your energy and your silver out of the game because otherwise people will just start trading them. Yeah. It will just happen. And the problem is then your game becomes pay to win if this is important. So what you have to think about is, okay, can you trade those resources? Can you pull them out of the game? And the way we're thinking about this right now is actually in Dark Forest, you can break causality. And what this means is you spawn somewhere and you have to expand your universe like progressively at a certain speed and you, you grow but the problem in dark forest is right now you can gift planets so a really easy way to break causality is you spawn in one place of in the universe you spawn in another place you gift the planet from the like the other like edge of the universe to the first account you have and it boom you're in two different places and you essentially teleport it and so interesting so this is what people like you if you join the game yeah. with two whitelist keys Right. Yeah. That's how you teleport. That's how you teleport. And the problem is, if you could withdraw money from the game and then put it back, you could teleport too, essentially. Because you withdraw it in a certain place in the universe, and then it's back into normal Ethereum land where the whole universe is compressed into one point. There's no notion of distance, and then you drop it back, right? So one thing we want to do is we want our virtual goods to be interoperable with the rest, not like in Dark Forest right now. I mean, they might change it, but right now it is not. We want people to be able to trade our things. But we want to make it such that those assets will refuse to be traded if the trade happens between contracts and addresses that are not in the universe and not close enough in the universe. Right. Because when you do that, you still cannot break causality. Because you can, because there is no more notion of withdrawing from the game. The things can always be moved away from the game, but it would only allow it to be transferred or like with a contract or with another one, uh, with another person if you're close enough. So here yeah. you couldn't do the teleportation trick, right? Yeah. It's interesting as you're talking, I like all these parallels come to mind for me with like the rest of crypto or the rest of the world where, you know, for instance, there are 
certain like security tokens, like right tokens yeah. where if you if you have the you know if a musician is selling rights to their future royalties and whoever holds this ERC twenty token is entitled to a piece of those, like those are considered securities. Yeah. So you can't just go on Uniswap and sell them to whoever's on the other mm -hmm. side. So there's there's you know checks. You know, there was this project Harbor that had built this R token model where inside the ERC20 transfer function, it would basically like do this call out to a whitelist mm -hmm. and see if the recipient address was also, you know, on the whitelist. Mm -hmm. But this is like generalizing this idea to you call out into this distance function. Yes. Yeah. And if the address is within, you know, some distance, yeah. they can receive. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that can be any function. There's, there's a lot of expressiveness it's really interesting you can think of like a bunch of distance functions are very obvious like oh if you're in a grid and like how far are you from each other in a grid but like it can be an embedding space like or like a reputation space like are you friend with each other like in a social graph like can you you wouldn't be able to transfer things to people that are too far from you in some sort of like social graph or whatever like anytime you have a distance function you can embed any sort of yeah, as you said, it's super expressive, right? And this, I think this idea is very interesting also because it completely alleviates the, not completely, but it greatly reduces the arbitrage problems. Because let's say you're a miner, like not even a miner, you just watch the mempool. There's an arbitrage opportunity in a cavern between a merchant and a player. Well, if you're not there, you can't do anything about it. <laughs> right. Like our arbitrage bots would have to be at every single place in the universe to be able to arbitrage to do arbitrage, basically. Well, again, this makes me think of the real world, right? Yeah. Where there's <laughs> yeah. like these exchanges, you know, like there was the whatever, the the exchange in Korea or in Japan and the price of ETH was yeah. like 5% off from yeah. the exchanges in the US and you have to go set up outposts, like legal outposts in both yeah. countries. To be able to exploit the arbitrage yeah. opportunity. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And on, you know, on Ethereum, on open blockchains, by default, everything is like everything. Well, everything's like op available to everyone, right? It's one pool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, things tend in that direction of unification, yeah. right? It's like the fact that you have one Uniswap pool for a particular pair means that the liquidity like builds up. Yes. But here we're talking about like artificially creating these distances mm -hmm. and separations yes. and seeing what sorts of things emerge. Yeah, I think it would make it more fun, to be fair. Yeah. Because in EVE Online, EVE Online is mostly economics. People play to basically LARP, real life and like business. And the interesting thing is it is interesting because in player like it because it is inefficient. If it were, if the markets were efficient, you know that people trade derivatives in EVE Online they wake up in the morning at 8 a.m. and they open their like leverage dashboard and they trade derivatives on titanium and like on like whatever spaceship parts. And it's crazy, but people like it because the market is sophisticated, financially speaking. But at the same time, it's, this, it's still possible for pirates to crash the price by like destroying a big cargo. And so it basically like mixes seriousness and playfulness together. I mean, if you consider like finance to be serious. And so I find that's fascinating. And I think we could just like literally do the same thing, but with the whole added benefits of interoperability where it's not even possible for us to predict the second order consequences of things. Whereas in EVE Online, everything had to be designed by that studio in Finland. Yeah. If you 
change what you're optimizing for from just purely being what's most useful yeah. and change that change what you're optimizing for to what's most fun or yes. playful yeah. the space to explore there it's is massive huge. yeah because in ETH I mean Vitek talked about that at ETHCC right the first production ready thing that happened is DeFi because given like gas costs and fees the only thing that makes sense is like making more money than the fees right and so which is why De and also DeFi is it's it's like objectively easy because when you when you build like when you build any financial application the difficulty is like maintaining a proper ledger the budgetary accounting like security and stuff but for ETH you get all of this out of the box and afterwards it's just like can I implement math to make those financial protocol work and they're easy to implement right but I think that when like games are like the second step after that because they're harder to implement but they're still fully on chain so you don't have all those nasty problems of having to deal with off chain stuff and we will probably see this whole like because with DeFi people could not have predicted what happened if they just tried to like look at the normal like the traditional financial systems and then adding like decentralization it was not possible to predict what would happen like DeFi summer and yield farming is just completely emergent it makes no sense and I think similarly with games right now we just think of like oh it's going to be like a simple reward or Roblox but decentralizing people who write scripts on top I think that this is the case right now but in the future, like maybe a year from now, it's actually impossible to predict what's going to happen. Like bonkers stuff could happen. And yeah, and we're all, we're constantly surprised yeah. by what people do. Yeah, yeah. So one of these ideas that you were talking about yesterday that might be, you know, might be the seed of something emergent was this idea of impersonation, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, the way we, we reached it, that that concept of impersonation is was mostly for security slash engineering reasons because the way you play Dark Forest and the, play, the way you play Zika Dungeon is you don't connect through Wallet Connect or MetaMask or whatever you have a burner wallet to just like approve like signs transactions and send it on chain because we want to be able to send a lot of those transactions and having a pop up every time would be annoying for the user but we also want to be people to be able to connect to ZK Dungeon in Dark Forest with the same identity in other games too. And so right now, if you wanted to do that, you would have to copy paste your private key around from your burner wallet. Right, because the burner wallets in your local storage exactly. that's specific to the particular... Exactly, yeah. And then, and then also you don't want, ultimately you don't want apps to do key management for you. You want this, you want to be sovereign of those keys. And so the, what we thought about is, okay, you still come, like your identity is the address derived from the private key that is inside MetaMask or your ledger or whatever. But then, from this account, you basically authorize a burner wallet to impersonate you in the contract for low-stake actions. So for everything, but let's say transferring NFTs, that burner wallet can do actions on your behalf. But the interesting thing is, as soon as you have an impersonation mechanism, you get a lot of features for free out of the box. First, you get guilds. Because what is a guild? A guild is a smart contract that joined the game as a player and then approves a bunch of players to play as the guild. And then those players can also right. have burner wallets. So basically, like from that simple pattern, you get guilds that have at least guilds in a simple form where they're shared their treasury and their units and everything. Right. The second thing you think the second thing you get is if you can set a scope. I mean, you know, OAuth in Web two has scopes for like what apps can access. If you can set scope to with that impersonation pattern, you can and if because it's interoperable, you could actually rent access to some part of your dungeon to people. You could be like, hey, you, you pay me that much or you do this. And for the next 12 hours, you can control those monsters. And then they automatically go back to me. I mean, they, they never left my inventory. It's just like, you can do stuff with them on my behalf, right? 
And so just from a simple pattern, that simple impersonation pattern, you can already get a lot of mileage out of it. It makes this last thing makes me think about how, you know, certain YouTube channels, like I was just watching this thing. I don't know if you know this channel, Yes Theory. Yeah, yeah. It's it. yeah, and they pretty pretty fun. Yeah, I think their fun. videos are cool. Yeah. But they they've done this thing a couple of times where they ask like their audience to choose what they do, yeah, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. a choose your own adventure. Yes, yes. And you could codify that into the rules of the game yes. where it's you literally hand over the reins, like the permissioning to some user so you watch on, on Twitch, right? And they could, you know, they could go get you involved in some yeah. crazy battle. Yes. And then, you know, you're this world class player who has to come back and exactly. like, and just dig yourself out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and the engagement, like how much more engaging this would make the game for other people who are watching it. Yeah. And the craziest thing is we would get that out of one morning of interface design and solidity. It's like literally five lines of code and like some UI for this. Whereas in another game, like there are companies that are entirely built to create products that allow traditional games to have those sort of things on Twitch, as an example. Like, oh, we have an SDK such that Twitch like streamers can let their users control their character. We get it for free because of interoperability. And I think we're going to see this happening over and over again, where we fought the hard battles at the beginning and with all those constraints, but now we can move much faster than anybody else. Like we already have a scripting language. It's solidity. We have like anti-cheat, authoritative servers, account management, all this is just there for us. We didn't even have to build it. So I, th I think it's pretty insane. Yeah, you, you have a very small Solidity contract that enforces the core rule yeah. set of the game. Yeah. And then anyone can write other things on top of it, whether there are other smart contracts or web applications. Yeah. And then you have this whole ecosystem potentially building out this game. Yeah. So what do you think the evolution of these games will look like? and and when they'll become compelling to like the general game playing public. Cause it seems like they're gonna like go up this curve of at some point, you know, these like improvements and the ecosystem is gonna compound on itself in ways that, you know, a closed game with even an API won't be able to match. Yeah. How are you thinking about this in your own in your own plans? Yeah. I, I agree with the last one. I think that there is like the second or the third derivative here is extremely high, but we don't see it. And so it's going to look like nothing in a toy for a long time. And then it will start compounding so fast that we'll barely keep up, I think. But it's fine because I think this one thing that is interesting when you build crypto app is you just give it away to people and then they do things with it and you find you can sleep at night because if things have been well designed, then they should not be on fire the day after. And so to go back to the question, I think that the way we're thinking about it is right now, given scaling issues and just like the general immaturity of a lot of tools, I think we will probably have to stay around enthusiasts for like a, at least a year or two. Uh, because, I mean, we're seeing people that know nothing about Ethereum and like even blockchain play the games because they find it interesting. One, one thought we had from players today at the LAN party is that they thought it was amazing that they were playing a game that nobody had figured out yet because a lot of traditional games have been min-maxed and completely analyzed and like have been figured out. Whereas here, but this, this is not a property of what we're doing. It's a property of any new game, right? But there is something for players that are like quote-unquote traditional gamers. It's just like it is a new game that people are playing. I think that another thing, and this is a tangent, but another thing I found really interesting is that people said that they have way more quote-unquote out-of-the-game experience 
in those games than in traditional games. And what I mean by this is in traditional games, you play a world garden that has been completely designed by the game designers. And then the only out of the game experience you have is talking about it on Discord. Like there is no way to do stuff outside the game that involves the game apart from communication. Whereas people who played the Dark Forest round said, wow, like I bought hash from a shitty guy on Discord and I sold my maps and I had strategies that you I have all these side adventures. Yeah. Yes, yes. And if you think about it, this is more the metaverse than the game itself. The metaverse is you LARPing on Twitter and on Discord and moving things around. This is the experience that like matches what has been described in like Snow Crash and Player One and stuff. It's not the game itself. People are too focused on the games themselves. The games themselves are just shelling points to bring people together. But the actual metaverse is all during directions you have around, right? And all the stuff you do. But for traditional games, the maximum thing you can do is just like post things about it on Reddit and talk with people on Discord. But now you can build on top, you can share things. You can do that to an extent with Roblox, but it's like pretty limited and world. And so I think this is also very interesting. The fact that they have all those out of the game experiences. Yeah, another another idea sim on in the vein of like why people find these games fun to play is that it's at the forefront of using this new technology, right? Yeah. And so you could like you could look at ZK Dungeon or Dark Forest, just the game itself, yeah. and you could build the whole thing on like the the back end of it could yeah. have been just straight up servers. Yes. And the gameplay might have been exactly the same for all intensive purposes, but like there's a design decision that you've both made to not hide that away, yeah. right? Like literally Recent. put the fact that yeah. these like ZK proofs are being generated yeah. or verified and yeah. there is a freaking terminal on yeah, the screen yeah, yeah, yeah. when they don't need to be, but yes. that's that's part of like why people yeah. find this exciting. Yes. I mean, it's just that at the beginning, like projects are, are always default dead. They're not default alive, right? And to turn projects from default dead to default alive is you want people that are like, just, you want things that are extremely polarizing at the beginning. You want people, most people to say, nah, I don't want to play this. But the remaining people are just, holy fucking shit, I just found my tribe. <laughs> I just, I just like, I'm just so happy to see those proofs being proved and whatever. And like the fact that when I'm playing, it's like basically state of the art math that is used. Another thought I had when I was playing Dark Forest and, and Zeke Internet is like, wow, blockchains are probably like the most resilient data layers ever and my dungeon would probably be around 30 years right <laughs> like this game i'm playing this evening yeah, yeah the artifacts from it will literally be around after i'm dead yes most probably and it's insane if you think about it just because it's probably the most durable data storage in existence same thing with bitcoin bitcoin would be run for like until people like yeah like until the heat death of the universe most probably so anyway yeah i think it's just as you said because you embrace the fact that it's like technologically at the forefront of like, it's, it's just like bleeding edge. People played for that. But I also think that people would play it even if it was not just like for the fact that it was bleeding edge. If that, that's this is kind of counterintuitive. But I think that the interesting thing here is people play for the community because the community, like the game attracts people that are interesting. And so let's say you have like profile A that wants to play things that are at the bleeding edge, who plays the game. And then you have profile B, who doesn't care about the bleeding edge, but cares about being people that are interesting, around B, around people that are interesting, will play because of this. And so it's kind of like in nightclubs, where like at the beginning, they totally. just start to get really hot people in the nightclub so that afterwards, like everybody comes. It's the same thing here. Yeah. And it works. Yeah, totally. 
that it's a really good point. Mm-hmm. It's like the same like metaverse, like layer two of the game type idea. Yeah. And it's why it it's just fun to be an early adopter mm-hmm. of things, even though they probably suck to use at the time. Yeah. But like the community that's forming around them yeah. is what's special. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because right now, if you were to make a social product or a social app that purposefully sucked, nobody would use it. Even the ones that don't suck, people don't use it most of the time, right? But here it's different because there's like this sense of belonging that people can have. And like every time I think about how bad the game look, I think about Dwarf, Dwarf Fortress, right? Which is literally an ASCII game that has just a very fanatical following just because it's interesting and hard to play. And they identify with the fact that they can play a game that is hard to play. And the fact that they like they belong to this community. So I think this is how you bootstrap. You start from those like very polarizing features. And then progressively, you try to retain this group of like evangelical users that have been polarized at the beginning while progressively appealing to like a bigger Venn diagram, like all oh, more and more mainstream. I think the difficult thing here is at some point you start losing the evangelical users who would then just like fork the game and make it hard again, most probably. So this is the difficult part, I would say. And I think we might already, we already saw it happening with Dark Forest, actually. The players that were playing in the first round just like gave up and are not really playing anymore, some of them, because now it's like, they're just DAOs playing and it got too serious and people are playing for the prizes and stuff. So at some point, as you will, like as your game will evolve and your community will evolve, you will drop some of the demographic automatically. Yeah, it's part of the evolution. It makes me think of how people at Burning Man are like, Burning Man was, you know, stopped being cool 10 years ago. And people have been saying that for since it began. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you start with like actually really, really, really weird people (laughs) and it goes less weird over time. And then totally, yeah, it's probably the same thing. Yeah.